I'll take first watch. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of the First Watch Podcast, the very last episode of 2022. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I'm good. I see you. How about you? I'm doing great. Look, we just dropped our top 10 Disney episode, which was a a saga. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm feeling really proud of it, and I'm very excited to be wrapping up the first year that we've had to talk about someone that you love very much returning after 13 long years james cameron avatar the way of water ah thank god i've been waiting for so long how have you been passing the time while you were waiting have you seen anything else i've just been blasting through a bunch of the movies that are being considered for awards or getting nominated possible contenders one of the ones that i've seen more recently is the possible front runner for best animated feature Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of Pinocchio mm, topical Disney episode Pinocchio yeah. and of course del Toro loves making movies about the evils of fascism so this adaptation sets it in 1930s fascist Italy Geppetto loses his son to a bomb that destroys a church in his local village He's so distraught that when the pine cone that his son ran back into the church to save grows into a gigantic tree and becomes the home of Jiminy Cricket, Geppetto cuts the tree down in a drunken rage and starts building this makeshift puppet to replace his son. The Blue Fairy notices Geppetto's despair and bestows Pinocchio with life. And the story as we know it mainly unfolds from there, just with a few more topical twists. This was one of my most anticipated of the year. I saw this in theaters a couple weeks ago before it dropped on Netflix, and I've had a lot of time to think about different parts of it. I like, for instance, how the creation of Pinocchio was so much darker in this. Mm. It's such an interesting foot to start everything out on. But I have to say, I think it's maybe the most disappointed I've been with a movie this year. This movie's a musical, kinda. For some reason, and the songs (laughs) all suck. There's this little thought I've been tossing around in my head. Which of these two things is better or worse? A musical where all the songs are bad, or a musical that gives up on being a musical a third of the way through, and you're kind of relieved because all the songs suck? It's the worst of both worlds. I did love the design of it overall. I thought that the uh, biblically accurate Blue Fairy and Def, her sister, were great. Tilda Swinton, again, double role. Love that for her. She's having the decade to end all decades right now. Yeah. She was the highlight of this for me. I loved her in this. Also did enjoy Ewan McGregor as Jiminy Cricket. I did love the running gag of him starting his musical number, but never getting to finish it. That is a good gag. There's something about the characterization of Pinocchio that is so naive and innocent Mm -hmm. that doesn't really play for me very well, because it just lacks a certain mischief or darkness. And I thought that that would be part of the angle here because Del Toro is taking this text, which is about obedience, and he's kind of making it about disobedience in this fascist setting. But I don't really feel like that goes anywhere. Even though it's a two-hour movie and we're used to like the 80-minute version of this, it doesn't really feel any richer with its characterization, and it's got less plot. It just really kind of spins its wheels while pointing out all this stuff, you know, like, here's the military side of fascism, here's the religious side of fascism. I know you love this, 
but can you come up with something else? Can you come up with something else? The movies are The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, these dark fantasy movies for adults that are rated R. Mm -hmm. And I think that this having a PG rating kind of takes some of the instruments out of Del Toro's torture kit. Yes. And he doesn't really get to take everything to the level of these other movies. Pan's Labyrinth is a fantasy for children that plays as this historical movie about fascism. This just feels a little more flat, a little safer. Restrained. You know, the Mussolini bit is like, he's a short little guy. There's not really anything about Mussolini in this. The villain is still Christoph Waltz, who's playing the fox. Who's not even a fox. I was kind of pissed off that he's like a man. (laughs) And now we got a Kate Blanchett monkey. I didn't know it was her until somebody told me after. (laughs) Oh, that's Kate. That's Lydia Tarr. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was listening to the monkey, like, making ooh and eyeing and, you know, like, shrieking. Why does that sound like Kate Blanchett? And then, (laughs) wow, there it was. Fantastic. I just miss the days of Crimson Peak, man. I just miss that. I'm a big Shape of Water supporter, but it has a lot to do with the actors in that. And I don't know, there's kind of like a big sloppy, wet, emotional kiss. <laughs> you know, the black and white musical number. And yeah. It's super thick with that nostalgia and the score and everything. Yeah. But yeah, these last two, Nightmare Alley's a really good looking movie. And I like the cast. Great gowns, beautiful gowns, late period tim burton i think that he's a steadier hand and my instinct is to rebuff that but then i remember how good burton was and it's like yeah i don't know it's not like he was a bad filmmaker at any point just at some point it became these kind of like excessive stylistic trademarks adapting properties that seemed burton-esque yeah one of the things that i've been thinking a lot with one of the movies that I'm going to bring up, as well as Avatar, and just in general about a lot of movies, like we were talking about it with Banshees of Inishirin, is how does a director relate to the material in their films? What is their relationship with the text? Right. And it feels like even though Pinocchio is like this really long gestating thing that represents all these historical, political, and emotional, and genre themes central to Del Toro's career, I don't really feel that spark. I don't really feel like he's digging in and telling us yeah. new interesting stuff every single video interview you see of him he's so full of life and excitement talking about this and showing off the puppets and like i get excited watching him talk about it i just wish i felt that in the movie when he spoke or tweeted because they were tweets about west side story i think around oscars time yes. and he was just talking about the blocking the cinematography the really intricate camera and lighting setups that kaminsky and spielberg used I felt my heart flutter reading every word of that. There's so much knowledge and passion just rolling off of him. You know what that reminds me of is his words on Bardo, the new Alejandro Iñárritu, which is going to be dropping on Netflix soon, which is another one that I saw in theaters. If you had told me that I would like the new Iñárritu more than I would like the new Del Toro at the beginning (laughs) of this year, (laughs) I don't think I would have believed you, but... I think that Bardo has a lot of personal passion from the director. Mm -hmm. The easiest way that I can explain it without giving too much of the setup away, it's kind of like a riff on eight and a half. It's a very clear self-insert for the director, and he's going through his day-to-day life, but it's this sort of mix of movies, history, memory, fantasy, and it just blurs from one scenario into another. So he's on the bus 
holding a bag full of axolotls, you know, those little, Mm -hmm. they're indigenous to Mexico. And then in the next scene, he's dropped the bag and the entire bus is full of water. So it's got these very fantastical scenarios. And what it's unpacking is the lead character, who is a journalist, who is an aspiring documentarian, looking at that character's professional success against his ethics, his ambitions. For example, he makes a documentary about impoverished people, and his son challenges him, you are never in poverty. You grew up rich. What Mm. business do you have making a movie like this? The Roma allegations. It's kind of navel-gazing, but it's inspecting Inuritsu, Quarones, and a number of other directors' place in the world, going, what does it mean when I get all of my acclaim from the United States, from the capitalist machine? Can art be revolutionary when it's commodity? Reminded me a lot of Birdman Mm. in its camera technique and in its subject matter, but it's like Birdman by way of Richard Linklater's Waking Life, Mm. where it's just very fucking off the wall. It's quite pretentious. It's too damn long, but I found it very moving and interesting, and I thought about it for a long time after seeing it. I'm pretty excited to check this one out. Um, I am also pretentious, <laughs> just like Henry <laughs> too. And if it's like Birdman, and I did love Birdman a lot, you got me sold there. Really quickly, just before we get into James Cameron, I wanted to shout out a movie that I saw this week, Monday, and is now my new favorite film of the year. It's the new movie from Laura Poitras, who is a documentarian. She's really known for Citizen Four, which is a documentary about Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. whistleblower. This new movie, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, I went into it pretty blank. I knew that it was about the opiate crisis. I think I mentioned that to you. And then you were like, yeah, it's about the Sackler family. Mm-hmm. And so I went into it expecting quite like Citizen Four to be this sort of expose, really fierce political document that flew in the face of the powers that be. And it's totally all that. It is absolutely all of those things. But more importantly, and more accurately, it's about Nan Golden, who is a photographer, who is part of a group, kind of the leader of a group called Payne, P-A-I-N, who is this activist group who is trying to discredit the Sackler family who made their fortune by engineering the opiate crisis, more or less, with the drugs Valium and OxyContin, which are things that impacted Nan Golden and countless others, led to about half a million deaths in the United States. And they funneled their fortune, the Sackler family funneled their fortune into museums, into universities, all these different places. And that's where the conflict of the movie's born. The reason it's relevant is because Nan is a photographer who has pieces in all of these museums, permanent pieces. And so she has a lot of leverage to be able to move them around. What this movie does is it explores Nan's entire biography from before the beginning of her life, talking about her older sister all the way up until the present day, such that what you get is a documentarian giving you a portrait of a photographer. And it's sort of the two of them always looking out at other people, at the communities that Nan Golden grew up in, so that this movie about the opiate crisis also becomes a movie about the AIDS crisis, also becomes a movie about heteronormative values and the way that they fucking destroy the world. Mm. It's incredible. It is a major work. It's my favorite documentary of the decade so far. I left incredibly moved totally pissed off. (laughs) Just an incredible, incredible movie. I saw it totally alone in the auditorium and it kind of broke my heart that there weren't 
at least some other people there watching it with me. But yeah. nonetheless, this has been playing at my theater since Thanksgiving, and I still haven't seen it yet. But almost every single screening has been busy at the very least. Wow. Didn't this win? Was it in Venice? Yes, it won the Golden Lion, only the second documentary to do so. Movie that I would recommend to just about anyone, whether or not you know much about any of the subjects, it'll teach you all about them by focusing so tightly on a human subject, it manages to be very expansive. A lot of people have criticized All the Beauty and the Bloodshed as feeling like two movies in one, and the truth is it's closer to like eight movies in one, (laughs) but they all work together perfectly. Really enriching stuff, I think. Awesome. So on to the main event. Your most anticipated movie in, what, five years, ten years? How many years? (laughs) What are we talking about here? I mean... (laughs) The movies I normally get excited about are, well, obviously not franchise fair, but there's a particular difference between The Favorite or Spencer, for example, where it's about the concept of the director who's playing who, but I don't normally get excited about Hollywood fair, but I have not been so excited about a movie all year as I have been for The Way of Water. We've teased it numerous times on this conversation. There's find some reason to be like, what about James Cameron? (laughs) We're going to basically just do the whole filmography at some point. I mean, there's only so many of them. It wouldn't be that hard to do. Yeah, he takes his time. I think that is got to be part of it, right? Is that oh, yeah. you can look at these long gaps. Sometimes they can hurt you. And then sometimes they just build anticipation in ways you might not expect. There's a certain vibe in the theater today that I haven't really had since Maverick. Mm. And I don't mean in the auditorium. I mean in the lobby. I mean like in the parking lot. That's what I felt, yeah. My auditorium was surprisingly full at 3 o'clock on a weekday. Mind you, I went to the IMAX auditorium at Grauman's Chinese, the movie theater with all the handprints. It's a 932-seat auditorium. So you got hundreds of people in there. The very opposite of me sitting in the 700-seat Texas theater alone for all the beauty and the bloodshed. (laughs) (laughs) Tough. Oof. We actually already talked about Avatar because it got that re-release, which is one of the highest grocers of the year, because even that had a certain level of electricity to it. One thing that I took away re-watching that movie and having that conversation was that really my opinion about the first Avatar is that it sacrifices drama and it sacrifices character and it sacrifices a little bit of like narrative sophistication or thematic complexity to be that big immersive experience yeah so when it comes to a sequel 13 years down the road i was completely curious to see how this movie would deliver on what it had delivered before like the technology the look the excitement and how it might improve or change the other things you've already done all the groundwork to establish this world to get people invested in a clean and simple plot line that people know like the back of their hands. Now you can start getting a little weird with it. It's been over a decade after the events of the first film, and former human Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, lives a tranquil existence on Pandora, with his Navi wife, Neytiri, played by Zoe Saldana, and their four children. Their two sons, Neteam and Loak, their youngest daughter, Tuktire, their adopted daughter, Kiri, who's the daughter of the avatar of Dr. Grace Augustine, played by Sigourney Weaver, and played by Sigourney Weaver again. Quickly, did they say that the Avatar body of Grace was pregnant, and this is the child that they got out of her pregnant Avatar body? 
Yep. Okay, I wanted to make sure that I understood that detail right, because that's insane. <laughs> yeah, and they have no idea who the father is. It just happens like one day. Jake has fully immersed himself in the world of the Navi and in the world of Pandora. But one night, the Sky People, aka humans from the dying planet Earth, return in force. This time, they're not interested in Unobtainium. Actually, no one even mentions Unobtainium in this movie at all. Their new plan is to conquer the planet and make it a new home for humans because Earth is running out of time. The scene where they land, that imagery to me is like War of the Worlds. Yes. Alien invasion, nightmare apocalypse, and the aliens are us. Mm -hmm. The aliens are human beings. I mean, it's ominous. A giant wall of flames that just burns up the entire forest. It looks like Shin Godzilla. Yeah. It looks like Nazca. Mononoke. Oh my god. Oh my god. (laughs) It takes like the 9-11 imagery of the first film and just times it a thousand. It looks like a nuclear detonation. Yes. Christopher Nolan jealous. And then like the ships land and the bulldozers come out and they start bulldozing the ashes. Mm -hmm. You don't see one human being walk off that ship you see a bunch of mechs and tanks and they have their faces hidden behind their gas masks and it's just unnerving i want to shout out there's also one other character that pals around with the sully clan a human child named spider who was left behind because he was too young to be put cryosleep so he's a human who's been raised on pandora among the natives he hangs around like a stray cat, but Jake and they, Terry, don't exactly accept him, even though their children do, because they look at him and all they see is the enemy. After the humans land, Jake and they, Terry, lead their clan on several raids against the humans to try to slow them down and stop them. However, once Colonel Quaritch, revived from the dead as a Navi, makes his presence known and his plan to hunt down and kill Jake and revenge for his death in the last film, Jake and Terry have to make the tough decision to leave their clan behind and take their children and flee in order to protect everyone in the Omatakaya clan. So they fly across the ocean and end up with a seafaring tribe, and they take refuge in this little village by the ocean that's led by Tonawari, played by Cliff Curtis, and Ronal, played by Rose. It's Kate Winslet, everybody. That's right. She's back, and she's pregnant. Yep, and she's a warrior, because to James Cameron, pregnant warriors are very empowering. In that opening segment where Jake is kind of catching you up on everything, there's a scene where you see Neytiri's pregnant, and Mm -hmm. she's probably hunting, she's not really like fighting anybody, but she's hunting while she's got the big pregnant belly too, so you see that imagery with her as well. Oh my god, that close-up on her face in that scene? (gasps) I thought that was like makeup! So like, this is getting way too far into the movie there's a moment where jake has come back it's like the very last scene and he's got this white war stripe down the middle of his face that's been like washed off Mm because they've been like in the water swimming around i mean it looks like a painted human face (laughs) how textured it is it's very difficult i think to really make a movie that's got better computer graphics than avatar from 2009 but they did it where do you go from there and the answer is here yeah i don't know what that means but it's here yeah it's here and it looks real like i felt i could just walk up to the screen step inside and i would be there i felt like the 3d here was more effective because there was i don't want to say less of it because that would probably be inaccurate but it's subtler it's softer there's not as much stuff being flung at you one of my favorite implementations of of the 3d is when you're with all the kids all of the sully kids 
and all of the water tribe kids that all become a little gang. Loak is explaining this experience that he's had to the rest of the kids, and you're going around them in a circle, and the 3D gives it like such a rich dimension without ever looking weird or unnatural. It's just yeah. like, it looks like it's happening in front of you instead of on a screen. It looks like a nature documentary. Like they just actually mm-hmm. went to whatever planet this really is, set up a camera and just pressed record. And that's a significant amount of the minutes of this movie are exactly that type of content. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is once the Sullys get here, they find out, oh, all of our biology is for the forest. Whereas these aquatic Navi have marine biology, more flipper-like hands. They've got a tail that swishes side to side in the water to help them propel. And so the Sully clan, particularly the kids, spend a lot of time just learning the wildlife, kind of like Jake did in the first movie. Make the connection to all the different animals and do all the little rites of passage. They have to do all that here, which means that you just spend significant amounts of time under the water looking at marine wildlife. It's so pretty. It reminds me of when I was a kid going to the New England Aquarium and just being mesmerized by everything. If there's one thing you got to know about me, it's that if you show me the ocean in a way that's pretty, I'm just going to love that. Finding Nemo, you know, yeah. very early on before you even get into the ocean in this movie. You know, sometimes it'll be the wisp. Sometimes it'll just be like a little sparkle. Yeah. It'll fly off in 3D and just kind of like the little embers of a fire. Or something. Yeah. And when you get into the ocean, it's all like that. When you have the 3D image, it's like looking into the aquarium and you see every little corner of it oh it's so good and the lighting is so good it makes all the other underwater shit word to black panther which look great you know talo khan wakanda forever looks really good this looks real (laughs) this was just made on such a huge grand gigantic level so much time so much money that it makes even the best looking blockbusters look cheap I'm still in awe that this movie even exists, even with stuff that probably could have gone wrong, like the high frame rate, for example. I did see it at a high frame rate. Did you? Yes. I actually did not mind it at all, especially when you're underwater. It just felt, again, so real, so lifelike. As a matter of fact, it felt a little bit more jarring when it got out and went back to the 24 frames per second, but in the 48 frames beautiful. I didn't really notice it too much in the underwater scenes. To be honest, I noticed it really badly in the opening 20-30 minutes. It does take some time to adjust. I don't like high frame rate usually. I can't think of another movie shot in high frame rate like The Hobbit or Gemini Man or Billy Lynn's long (laughs) halftime walk. I love you, but those movies are not good looking in my opinion. It's not a technique I love. I don't really love it too much in the original Avatar. They kind of use it there, almost like comic book splash page action. Mm. Would it be like Sute or Neytiri doing like a cool fucking like bow move yeah. and shooting three dudes in the face? <laughs> That's when they'll go to the high frame rate. This one's doing it more, and so you kind of acclimate to it. Yeah. And I found that I acclimated right away. And then by the time you get to action stuffed finale, Dudes are flying, getting thrown everywhere. Limbs are flying off. It's so cool. <laughs> like More proof that James Cameron is perhaps the only person who should be trusted with a budget this big and techniques this far advanced. I think this is true in both movies, but I loved it even more here. The biology 
of Pandora. Mm. You just see these different organisms and they all live in biomes. I feel like if you really studied it, even though sometimes it's just marginal, it's just background information, you can really see that it is like an organic environment. Yeah. It's an ocean. It's an ecosystem. It's never just like, oh, here's like a fish with extra eyeballs plopped in. They put in the time and effort to make this the most fleshed out sci-fi world of any movie, period. I can think of some science fiction environments that I like more, but all of those are interior. They're synthetic, alien, or maybe man-made. This is one of the best I can think of that's outdoors in the wilderness, when you see the sea people, they have fish-like eyelids, two sets of them, mm-hmm. one that closes vertically, and then the kind like we have that closes horizontally in front of them. And you just see that in animation. No one calls it out. No one talks about it. It's just there because they've adapted to this environment. They're part of this environment. And that may sound silly, like it doesn't matter. And it's just like something that I like because it's cool. True, 100%. But it actually emphasizes the great balance. It emphasizes the critical importance of nature to these indigenous people's lives, to everyone's lives. By doing this, of course, it's a symbol for us and our connection to the earth and how you have a body and it has all these different things and it's for connecting to the planet. Right. To really get the biology right really emphasizes the ecological themes. Yeah. In addition to just being fucking cool. Right. And because... Most movies just don't think about that level of detail, frankly. The Cameron passion of the ocean, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew, right? You knew going in, it's called The Way of Water, all his blue posters, haha. Even the original Avatar to me is very aquatic looking. You got like the hammerhead things that walk around in the jungle there. But this is like, they got submarines shaped like crabs. Crawling around trying to catch people. Ugh. So good. What a great freaky little detail. Where the environmental messaging of the film really comes to a head are the animal stars of the show, the Tolkun, which are basically these gigantic whale-like creatures that have a intelligence pretty much on the same level as humans, if not even higher. Greater emotional intelligence, a greater brain for processing music and the arts and mathematics and language. The sea people even communicate with these whales through language and they can understand each other and they're subtitled in papyrus, which I fucking loved. (laughs) You hear they compose music. Yeah, extremely memorable animals. A lot of this story revolves around Jake and Neytiri's four children. Yeah, actually, Jake and Neytiri kind of take the backseat for most of this movie. It really does emphasize these kids as driving the plot, driving the conflict. And one of those conflicts is how they fit in. Because they're human-Navi hybrid. They all have four fingers. They are from this other clan, so they don't have the same features as these sea people. And so they're kind of treated like outsiders and teased and mocked. And because they're Jake's kids and Neytiri's kids, they don't fucking take that shit lying down. They get up in these kids' faces and they beat them up. Yeah. Start fight. (laughs) They develop a little bit of a rivalry. And this eventually leads to Loak trying to make peace with these kids who trick him into leaving the safety of the reef, going out into this dangerous area, and then just ditching him there, where he eventually gets attacked by this big fish. And eventually he gets saved from that big fish by by this big tolkun, one of the whales, and he develops a bond with this creature who is outcast from all the other tolkun. 
and we see that he's got a missing fin. He's actually got this big fucking hook in one of his fins. The space whale is like one of my favorite characters of any movie of this year. <laughs> Mine too. Completely serious. Like <laughs> I loved him so much. I need a plushie immediately. Loak and Hayakon share that moment that you see in the trailer where it's lit from behind and he's floating, touching the fin. Yeah. And you just get that sense of James Cameron scale to sell you on the majesty of that moment. The scale that he's operating at in this film is like nothing in blockbusters of the past like 20, 30, 40 years. Like in the back of my mind, I didn't have, you know, like Star Wars or anything. When I was watching this, I had David Lean in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, Lawrence of mm. Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. Wow. Like Bridge on the River Kwai, just like fucking huge. There's a moment I was going to bring it up because it happens before they leave the original area that's in the forest mm-hmm. or up in the Hallelujah Mountains. Jake is basically running these raids on the humans yep. where he's like blowing their trains off the tracks. And it reminded me a lot of a Western because they talk mm-hmm. about how Pandora is like the new frontier. Yep. But it's also Lawrence of Arabia blowing that fucking train off yep. the tracks. And I was like, yo! It's extremely classical in its style and execution. Uh, for me, what really took me away for everything that we've talked about so far it was the characters it was the family it was such an emotional experience for me in ways the first one ever was my single biggest grievance with that first movie is sam worthington Mm -hmm. and my second biggest grievance is jake sully because i think jake sully is a really vanilla character and i don't really think sam worthington is very charismatic he sort of works as your viewfinder your avatar if you will and here he's got four kids One adopted, three of his own, and each one of them tells you a little bit about him because of how they are Mm -hmm. and his reactions to like Loax misbehavior. And you're like, I can tell that this little John Connor fucker here (laughs) is just like you were, dad. I know that this was you. All these kids are so T2. Oh, God. It's so good. (laughs) I loved every single one of them. I'm serious. Like, Kiri is such a cool character what a great concept to play around with the reincarnation of someone actually reincarnation plays a big role in this because she's grace reincarnated and then you have courtridge reincarnated but he's not really himself he's in this new navi body so he's in the body of his former enemy and he's adapting to it he has this really great moment when he first wakes up and it's kind of like the inverse of jake waking up in his navi body for the first time He's looking at himself in the mirror and then he smiles and then he notices his fangs and then he just kind of like rubs on them. And he's got like this evil little grin. When he wakes up, he just starts beating the shit out of all the other Navi in the room. (laughs) They're like his crew. His entire team, including him, made backup avatar versions of themselves in case they died. And then they get these like Blade Runner ass memory implants so that they're cloned avatar selves have all of their old human memories and there's this open question with them of is that courage is that him or is this a new guy but it poses it indirectly with a character i've already brought up spider because we've got these humans in navi bodies right? right spider is a human child who's been raised among the natives and so he speaks the language he understands the culture but he's human he's also the son of colonel courage Ah. Weird. But as they say, that doesn't make him this new guy's kid. 
you're not even the same species. Right. And the shitty father that he no doubt was to him when he was a human. Yeah. But he feels this connection with Spider, right? Yeah, like in spite of himself, he can't help it. So Spider gets captured. He knows where the Sully clan is. So they put him in this evil looking machine to like psychic attack him yeah. into giving away their whereabouts. And Carmela Soprano is pressuring yeah. him. <laughs> To give it Four up. star general Carmela Soprano, Edie Falco, my goat. Love her. They've got this guy's kid inside this machine trying to torture him into giving up the position. And all he needs to do is think about it. So he is resisting them on a psychological level, this guy. And the Stephen Lang character looks at him and is proud is like, that's my boy. <laughs> and right then and there, he starts developing this connection with him. That that's the connection that might endear him to Pandora and the Navi culture and all the things that yeah. Jake learns through the first movie. And it also tugs on the essential idea that you are not that man, right. which means that all the things that he believed and all the things that he felt and all the things that he fought and died for don't have anything to do with you. Right. You're not inherently the evil colonizer. You're not. That's not you any more than it's Jake, because Jake is a Marine too. Right. So now you have like this mix of cultures and species uh -huh. happening. It's like, how far does this go? When it comes to your Mononoke's or your Watership Downs, a lot of times the message can come across, humans are bad. They have no place in the ecosystem. Man is a bad animal. What I like about some of the things that Avatar is doing is it's suggesting that the most powerful things of all aren't getting rid of the humans. Finding ways to get them to integrate into the system instead of living to exploit it and consume yeah. it. Although at the same time, it will also give you the very hateable humans that you want to see die viciously. And boy, do you get that here. Because they're the people that don't make that connection or refuse to. They can't integrate. What we see with Quarch is he's out there bonding to the flying dragon thingies. At first, he's ready to tranquilize one of them. Then Spider's laughing at him. He's like, what? You think Jake did it the easy way? And he's like, no. He's kind of speedrunning Avatar 1. Yeah. And thus has the potential to have all those emotional revelations that that character had in that movie. So you've got the cyclical nature almost running through this because you have Quartridge running through Jake's plot from the first movie. You have the children running through it as well. Because it's like a rite of passage. So it speaks to not just nostalgia for the first film, but tradition and how important that is. And we see it when they get to the reef. And they're having to learn how to do this all sorts of new animals yeah. that are in a different environment. They have to learn how to ride like a plesiosaur like creature. And then there's like those <gasps> flying, flying fish crocodiles. <gasps> Where they do the little tail, they come up out of the water and they dive in. Oh, it's so cool. Loved it. My favorite outside of the whales, my favorite are those little jellyfish things that help you breathe oh, underwater. Yeah. And they look like fairy wings. Yeah. <laughs> they're flying underwater. So Isn't it cool. great that the director of the biggest movies of all time is a nerd? He's a nerd who understands the fundamental value of girl power, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> and unlike so many modern nerds who are all about sarcasm and snark and, mm. you know, the Rick and Morty of it all, this guy is totally 100% sincere about everything. Who's the most sarcastic character of like both of these movies to me it's probably giovanni rabisi yep 
as the corporate shithead. Yeah. Like that's an ironic character in a James Cameron movie. That's yeah. where irony gets you in his world. The evil little slimy suits. He's playing golf while the forest is being burnt down. Yeah. Glib doesn't care. Not connected. Just wants his money. In this movie, we get that through the whale hunters. Ooh. So we got the group of Marines who are trying to hunt Jake. They track him down to these various villages. And the ship that they commandeer is a whaling ship. So the entire time that they're going after Jake, the captain of this thing is like, hey man, I got quotas. I gotta go fishing. We gotta do our thing. And they come up with the idea of like, okay, we're gonna let you do your whale thing, but we're gonna do it really close to the villages where you don't usually do it Mm -hmm. to bait them into coming out and attacking us. A really big part of this movie is repeatedly they are trying to provoke specifically Jake, but any of the Navi into attacking. They're like, let's piss them off and get them to come for us. That happens over and over and over again. And Jake has really wised up. I really thought that was interesting because like his character's like, no, we got to be smart. We got to think. He's like aware of what is going to happen if they just rush in. And they do want to rush in. When it comes to the Na'vi, when they see the creatures of this world killed without reason, it wounds them deeply. When Portrich is searching the other villages looking for them, the way that he tries to get them to talk to him is by shooting a sea creature. Yeah, and then by even burning down their homes. So he hits somewhere. It really hurts. The wailing set piece. Okay, that entire set piece. Flames, flames on the side of my face. person next to me was full-on sobbing by the end. Can I say that it takes the imagery of Jaws and turns it into something much more horrible? Yes. They're shooting these marine creatures with things that bring them up to the surface, these like yellow things, and it looks exactly like what the three dudes in Jaws are doing to the shark at the end. It totally does. I mean, even with the harpoon and all. Hunting is such a big part of these movies. Mm -hmm. The whole first movie is like Jake learning how to be a Navi. A lot of that is him learning to be a hunter. This is a hunt for these whales. You got all the best machinery. The whales have a culture, and one of their rules in their culture is that they don't kill. Yeah. Portridge asks the captain, these things ever fight back? He's like, nope. He's like, uh-uh. <laughs> Hard to kill, though. Mm-hmm. And another big part of, at least on the world of Pandora, is death having a purpose. And if you're yes. hunting for yes. food, you use the entire animal. Here, what they do is they bring the whale back on the ship. They prop it open, go inside the mouth, drill up into the roof of the mouth pull out this slimy secretion from a gland that apparently makes people look young and pretty. That ship has a biologist played by Jermaine Clement, the New Zealand actor. Mm -hmm. You might know him from What We Do in the Shadows or Flight of the Concords, great comedian. He's the one that tells us about their brains and about how they might be smarter than humans because they have all these neural pathways. He's explaining this as you're watching this fucking huge needle go into its dead brain. Mm -hmm. And it's like really cold and ironic and mean and sad and then the product what does it do keeps people from aging it keeps human beings from aging that's why it has so much value and i thought about that for a long time because when i watched titanic when i watched avatar when i watched this avatar you were just saying it. death has a meaning mortality is inevitable it is natural to die and here we're looking at this devastation all to get one ounce of pushback on that mortality that we all have to face This is what it means to take energy away from Ewa Mm -hmm. instead of to receive it as a gift. It takes something that's already pretty gnarly, and I just felt like it tied it 
so well into all these other themes about loss and moving on in nature. The environmentalism here is possibly the strongest of Cameron's career. Side note, it makes me really interested if we do get all the way to five and apparently we do go back to Earth. Makes me just wonder what we're going to see. Nightmare World, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, right? Yeah. On the topic of these whales, Payakon, who Loak meets, is an outsider. The reason that he's an outsider is because these creatures don't kill. That's a really important rule mm-hmm. for them. But somewhat like Jake and the Navi in the first film, Hayakon in the past initiated, how would you call it? Like a counterattack. Yes. They were being whaled by these fishermen and they decided to attack. And this led to all the Navi and the Tulkun that went on this counteroffensive died, which they blamed on Payakon. And they didn't really like- The responsibility of the death is on him. Exactly right. And so you see that there's this real tragedy of his separation from his clan because he tried to protect them. Yeah. Because he tried to do the thing that Jake is resisting doing for the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out for him. Throughout this three-hour movie, you're like- so what do you do? How do you fight back against these people? Because this is wrong. This can't keep happening. Right. We can't let them keep doing this. But there's profit in it, so they're going to keep fucking doing right. it. They can't be stopped. All throughout the movie, Quaritch and his crew are trying to find Jake. Who they keep finding are his kids. That's what actually leads them to leaving the first place to go to the second place, is that they all have this confrontation where the finale of the first film happened, yeah. up by the old hatch. Mm-hmm. You also get that really awesome scene of Portridge looking at his human skull from his past body and then just crushing it in his hands. He's really affected by that death, which mm-hmm. as the human Portridge says in the video that he listens to when he first wakes up, is the one thing about his life that he won't remember yep. because it hasn't happened yet. And so he's really shaken up. He hones in on Neytiri and Jake's arrows, yep. which are what killed him. It's almost as if he's experiencing the death firsthand. He really has a very personal vendetta, even though I've tried to poke holes in his motivation. He's motivated. Yeah, He's looking for Jake, but every time he sees one of the kids, he's like, that's my leverage right there. Mm-hmm. And just snatches up the kids. They're just trying to get everybody safe. And because there's so many of them, it's almost like there's never a point when all six are safe. Right. (laughs) And if they are, it's not for very long because they end up going after somebody to save something. Everybody's in danger at some point or another. The reason the fret even finds them in the sea village at all is because Kiri links up to one of those like spirit trees underwater. So it's like spirit coral. And she has a seizure from meeting Grace. That scene took my breath away. I was actually really interested how the memory connection this time meant meeting the people from your past life. Hello, Ryan Coogler. Little Black Panther, right? That was literally the first thing I thought of. There's two moments with Kiri and Grace. That's one of them. And the other one is when you see Grace's avatar body in the tank. Yep. Kiri lays on top of the tank and presses her cheek to it and is like, hi, mom. It's just like her floating there lifeless. And it was just like, explain to me why this is so moving. Because like, Grace is dead. She's gone. And yet you've still got this avatar body floating around. But you're not like burying it or anything. You're just keeping it there. This is nearer to the end, but there's a moment where Neytiri's bow is broken. There's a bow that she got from her father. That's so sad. Gave it to her, and he said, protect the people. And that bow gets broken, and you're like, wow, damn. That was carved from the wood of the heart tree, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy to me how much of the first movie I had retained 
watching this because I was like, damn, I know all these details. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) The level of emotional connection, the jump up from the first movie is astonishing. And it's simple stuff, but I just think it deepens all of these characters. It enhances all of their conflicts. The Coen brothers as screenwriters will say that they like to write a hostage situation because it's what they consider to be a pregnant situation, meaning that any mundane thing that you write for the characters to do in a hostage situation becomes complicated because you have this entire extra layer that amplifies everything else that's going on. I mean, one, the kids are literally hostages at numerous points, so there's that. But just the idea of being a parent inherently complicates these people and everything that they're going through, no matter how basic it is. And the parent-child connections are incredibly felt. Zoe Saldana, Sam Worthington, these are the best performances of their careers. By far. Like, Sam Worthington, home run baseball. I don't like that guy. He's (laughs) great here. He's fucking great. The scene where he is on the fly fish Mm -hmm. and has to learn how to ride it the first time, just like, oh, he rocks. He's so good. Yeah, an unimaginable leap in quality. I agree. And then Saldana, the scene where she finds out something horrible has happened to the family and like that scream she lets out oh my god this is basically what initiates the third act yep the third act which it's a ship and it's sinking (laughs) (laughs) something that we see a couple times throughout the movie is that on pandora which i believe is a moon they have an eclipse of the planet in front of their sun so for several minutes the moon goes dark i don't know what kind of eclipse you call that when you're on the moon Uh, (laughs) planetary eclipse that's probably correct actually (laughs) jake comes up with a plan tell the whales fuck off to just leave to get out of there but because no one tells Pyakon, because he's an outcast loak is like we gotta go tell him so they go right out all the kids and this gets them captured which leads to the navi saying well we can't ignore that (laughs) yeah we have to go get our kids they get up a war party and they go right in and what follows is i mean it's the best shit james cameron has done imo since t2 in terms of pure action spectacle and i mean like i know that titanic's set piece is like peak shit it's a different vibe yeah that's, that's all i'm saying that's more disaster movie this is more and then you've got like the drama and the sense of tragedy and all that kind of it's yeah. like visconti stuff operatic this is a little operatic but also dudes get beheaded right limbs get chopped off people get stabbed blown up thrown against the rocks I had to take my jaw and I had to take the back of my hand to close it because I realized my jaw was open. I was like, wait a fucking minute. They reach a little bit of an impasse. They've got the kids as hostages. He's telling Jake, just give yourself up and the kids will go free. Probably not true. Probably bullshit. But what else can they do? Because Cortrich isn't the kind of guy that's going to bluff. Right. He'll shoot these kids. He doesn't care. And so Jake is going to go out there. And then all of a sudden, here comes Pyakon. He free willies that shit. Oh my god. <laughs> it's something that sort of happens in the first movie where like all of the creatures of the forest rise up yeah. and fight alongside the Navi after Jake prays to Ewa. In this case, it's just this one character. And he just wrecks their shit, man. <laughs> he fucks up the whole boat. Who's got the harpoon now? Yeah. <laughs> and then it immediately launches into like all these 
submarines and like the crab things and the boats. What this attack by Pyakon does is it creates enough chaos for the Navi to ride in without getting mowed down by machine guns. Yep. And that creates enough chaos for them to really mount their attack. And it gets more and more desperate on the part of Kortrich where he's like kind of the only guy left. Mm-hmm. And he's got Took and Kiri are the two that he still has locked up when the eclipse hits. Yes. And so at that point, Jake and Neytiri go full fucking apocalypse now mode. <laughs> <laughs> Popping out of the water and like wasting dudes. Slaughtering <laughs> anyone who has the misfortune of being in their way. And ooh, Saltana is so good as that. I feel like a lot of times I will say things in a way that's, I will honey my words. She's not intense. She's not intimidating. She's not fierce. She's scared. <laughs> She's letting out these fucking war cries and ripping dudes in half. Yeah. I'm like, uh. Like the parental rage. There is a particular scene where Spider, the human character, mm-hmm. is hiding from her. He's known her his entire life, basically. Yeah is more or less part of the family and is like, no, thank you. (laughs) And like, he knows that she doesn't really care about him. It even gets to the point where Portridge has Kiri by the throat and is threatening to cut her. With his signature buoy knife. And then they, Terry comes up from behind and is like, I'm going to slit Spider's throat open if you even try. She does a cool thing where she cuts his chest. Yeah, she like grazes him. That's the same way that they cut Jake when he steps down as the chief. Yep. And that's a great exchange because, again, it's tugging on that. This is your son, a son for a son. Mm-hmm. And what does he do? He lets Kiri go. He lets Kiri go, and then she lets Spider go. So today is still in Dallas, Texas, December 15th. Five years ago, I went and saw a little movie called The Last Jedi, which opened on this very day. And a big, 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 big theme of that movie that no one ever talks about because they get too worried about how it disrespects Luke Skywalker, some stupid shit, is a line by Kelly Marie Tran as Rose Tico to John Boyega's Finn, where she says, that's how we're going to win, not fighting what we hate, saving what we love. That's the way of water. Mm -hmm. It's about them saving what they love. Because they save Pyakon, he saves them. Because Portrait saves Spider, you can't win the fight by killing. Mm -hmm. You can only win the fight by appealing to love, this connection that everybody has. Suddenly the great balance and the force start to sound very similar (laughs) in my mind, not in the derivative way, but in like the essential core of fantasy storytelling Mm -hmm. as emotionally potent drama and filmmaking. That's what a guy like James Cameron can give you over just to throw out like Joseph Kaczynski in Maverick. Cause I think Maverick's got good pieces and good characters and it's an entertaining movie, but this is human drama written in, the images of the biggest blockbuster in the fucking world. Yeah, it's really all about having that heart. And this has heart in spades. You know, whoever's listening, you may not know me very well. If I earnestly compare a blockbuster to The Last Jedi in like a thematic, emotional way, what I'm saying is I was incredibly moved by this Mm. film. Every little bit of Kiri where she would be like, I can feel Awa's heartbeat. Because she's a human character too. She's the daughter of an avatar who is like a human who had a passion for Navi biology and Navi culture. And it's like that blend, that exchange, that's where the fucking juice is. Mm -hmm. It's not just about letting things lie where they are. It's about getting in there and making a connection to it. And the power of that connection is what 
lose everything. There's a scene where she like attacks bad guys by bonding to a sea anemone. <laughs> that was so fucking cool. Like ripping them apart, yeah. swallowing them. Destroying the sub. <laughs> the entire set piece at the end, which is like, I mean, incredibly evocative of Titanic, where Jake and Neytiri are inside the sinking ship. Yeah, they both have a child. Neytiri's with one of the children, the youngest daughter, actually. And then uh, Jake and Quartrix are fighting each other as the ship goes down. Because they have a chance after they decide not to kill Spider and Kiri, who then leave and get away from them. They kind of do a little Jack and Rose on the boat, right? Because they're running along the side of the boat yep. as it's like flipping over. You've got Jake and Quartrix decide they're going to have a knife fight because men. <laughs> <laughs> and Neytiri and Took are just trying to escape. They're doing Jack and Rose before they get outside the boat. Mm-hmm where they've got an air pocket that's slow shrinking. Stop doing that, James Cameron. I hate it. I mean, I love it, but I hate it. Please keep doing it. Never stop doing it. (laughs) When the lights go out with Neytiri and Took. Uh, And all they have left is the bioluminescence of their own bodies. Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't like it. You know, it's funny that James Cameron isn't a water sign. Yeah. (laughs) He must love them, though, right? Yeah. Clearly. But yeah, this feels like a culmination of everything he's been working on his entire career. I cannot quite picture what the sequels are going to be, but I need them to I think it's just going to splatter my brains all over the (laughs) auditorium. There's so many cool different directions that everything could go. He's expanded the roster of characters creatures environments it feels like all of those things still have room to keep expanding and expanding or deepening they are for sure so i would say like two of my quibbles with this movie like reasons i didn't give it a perfect score or anything i think the human characters like the marines and then the water tribe characters cliff curtis kate winslet could have used more from them and i don't mean more time i just mean like more conflicts more perspective they feel like they're kind of part of a plot as uh-huh. opposed to, like, the Sully clan, you get really deep with, I mean, all six of them, including Took, the little girl. Yeah. There's, like, a scene, she gets handcuffed, <laughs> and her brother frees her, and she gets handcuffed, she's like, I can't believe I'm stuck again. That got a huge laugh from my crowd. Oh, my God. I went, I awed, I went, oh. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> oh, God. I don't even like kids but this movie was just like so full of children characters and i was like this is awesome this guy is so good at children characters i do want to point out that the co-writers of this movie amanda silver and rick jaffa were the writers of the planet of the apes trilogy from the 2010s so i can definitely see how their influence brought the script up a notch one of the great strengths of those matt reeves apes sequels particularly is how well they develop culture the ape culture and how that's developed since the first movie, human culture and how that's degraded and developed since the first and second movie. Yeah. Very thoughtful, very textured, not just like detailed, but there's sort of like inner machinations, cause and effect. It increases the tension of certain scenarios because you start thinking like Jake, it's like, no, if they go do that, they're going to get this and then that's going to happen and then this is going to happen. And you can just predict all that in your mind because you know what characters are going to think and do. You know them so well. Such an efficient fast three-hour movie i was proud of myself i only had to take one pee break during this whole thing and it was i looked at my i don't have a watch i looked at my phone i realized i only had an hour left i was like oh there's only an hour left what no <laughs> why are uh, there two i am proud that i had an entire ic beforehand and did not have to go <laughs> even once i like 
prepped for it a little bit. I was like, all right, I'm not going to have it like drinks or anything for a little bit before I go. It's like a movie set in water, rain everywhere. It's fine. (laughs) But those 192 minutes move so fast. You know, it's not like perfectly paced at all times, but with how much character there is in it and how emotional it is. And like I said, we're talking about how fast paced it is. But I've already said huge parts of it are just swimming with whales. Yeah. You're just under the water swimming around. And even that part moves so well. And you're learning a lot. You're learning about characters and how they interact with each other. You're learning about the world. There's little mysteries. Like there's a part where Kiri's looking down into the sand. There's like a little hole. There's like a little hole in the sand. Mm -hmm. There's something under there. And she gets pulled away from it by other characters. And it's like, no, wait, what was there? Take me back. (laughs) <laughs> there's like these little unexplored things that you just like oh well it's a big world they're not gonna get to see all of it right i know that he has a nine hour cut mm. of the next one mm. i mean listen jim call me <laughs> there's nothing at all that he cannot accomplish at this point and i mean yeah. that was probably already true as of t2 and titanic and everything like those movies feel decades ahead of their time in the 90s when they came out this is like, no one will ever doubt this dude ever again. <laughs> there, ever. There's not words to describe the trajectory this guy is on. I've been thinking a lot about box office. The original Avatar opened 70-something million dollars. Week two, it also made 70-something million dollars because it only dropped like 2%, which is impossible, yep. unheard yep. of, never been done before. Mm-hmm. This movie is going to choke slam that opening weekend total. And I think it may just keep doing it week after week after week until, like, March. Yeah, whenever... Um, like, who's going to stop her? How many more times are you seeing it already? Um, Possibly twice. I mean, I'm seeing it a week from now. I'm going to go see it in IMAX, because I saw it in Dolby this time. And yeah. we got an IMAX theater. I'm going to go try to see it there. I think I'm seeing it in Dolby next time. Looked fucking great the imax was so pretty i want to see it in imax because it has an expanded ratio so there's even a little bit more to the picture a little bit of a loss james horner of course was the composer of the original film passed in 2015 yeah score maybe not as memorable as the last film a little less of a feature yeah but it's more about the sound mix it's more about like the waves and the creatures yeah exactly Exactly. Yeah, it's not as much about like you know whatever's on the soundtrack those themes still go fucking hard though so it was kind of funny to hear the weekend at the end though i was like oh okay <laughs> and he's like the lyrics of it are like real on the nose about like saving people or i don't remember what it was i forget you know what james cameron canadian pop singer you got a point irresistible combo thank god it wasn't drake <laughs> or justin bieber Ooh. You should get Avril for one of these. I don't know, Carly Rae, Shania, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> damn, damn. James Cameron would totally use Damn, I Feel Like a Woman. I feel like a lot of James Cameron <laughs> protagonists get down to that song. They definitely Like Sarah do. Connor definitely jammed out to that a little bit. Okay, someone needs to send Terry a CD of that. <laughs> Can he make a Terminator 3 movie that looks and feels like this? Could he that do that? That would be great. That would be great. I, I want to write him a letter. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Dear I mean, Mr. James Cameron. I mean, I I liked Dark Fate well enough, but... uh, I would cry myself to sleep if I got to see another James Cameron Terminator movie in my <laughs> lifetime that was anything like this, I swear to God. Yeah. And again, 
I feel like just I was saying about the last Jedi. It's like just me saying those words. You just I I really liked this. I I had tempered expectations. I was hopeful that uh-huh. it would improve upon the first movie. I was hopeful that I would like it more. I was hopeful that I would come into this conversation enthusiastic and happy. And it just annihilated my expectations for it. Just took them and nailed them to the wall <laughs> and said, watch this. <laughs> I have been bouncing off the walls in excitement about this. And I figured, you know, hey, it'll be maybe the same rating for me as the last one, you know, like a very solid eight out of 10, like it a lot, you know, great adventure. I did not think that it was going to enter my top five of the year, but it has. I now have to enter the unfortunate task of, did I like this movie as much as Nope? Did I like this movie as much as Fableman's? Because it's like, it's knocking around those ballparks for me. And like, yeah, just God, what a movie. Seriously. What an experience. It wound up fourth on my Cameron list. I put it over the abyss. Big deal Ooh. for me. And it's only below the two Terminators and Titanic, which nice. like sacred texts. I still need to put it on my Cameron list, but no one in the world makes movies like James Cameron. No one. No one makes bigger movies than James nope. Cameron. There's a lot of three-hour blockbusters in the world. We could name some of them, but we won't because we're nice. But uh-huh. I mean, I got a little shady in my review. I got a little shady. <laughs> but it's seriously like, this is bold. It's beautiful. It's exciting. It's emotional. It's soaring. It's a triumph on every level. That's what blockbuster cinema is. Play it big. Play it loud. It's what it should be. Almost every new release movie that I have seen in like the last week or two has just blown my ass away between like this and Eternal Daughter, Fableman's. The movies are really back. Title back to beginning. I know that after Del Toro saw The Way of Water, he said, when was the last time you saw a movie that felt like a movie? Harry Styles, you're nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, honestly, Cameron is the only person left with these kind of skills. All the other guys, whoever you want to say that they are, from you know, Tarantino to Scorsese, like they're just making smaller and more intimate projects these days, which yeah. I like. That really adheres to my sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I generally like a movie like Silence over yeah. a movie like Avatar. I like The Post over BFG, just whatever, you know? Uh-huh. We can right. do that all day long. But to have somebody that does it at this level and shows you what a blockbuster is really capable of. I love intimate movies too, but there's something to be highly treasured about someone who remembers what it's like to make something that just bowls over audiences the way that Lawrence of Arabia did or the Sergei Bonchok War and Peace did or Gone with the Wind did. Just making me excited about movies takes intelligence and care and craft it's not the easiest thing in the world not that hard it's pretty fucking easy actually i love movies i live for this shit to make my neighbor and my neighbor and my neighbor care about movies that takes a little bit of extra it takes something that only somebody like cameron really conjures i'll I'll just kind of reiterate that i think nope has to be on the list because peel has always made personal and intimate movies and that's his best one and he achieved it by crowd-pleasing by making something that was thrilling and exciting. So I do look forward to seeing how he progresses from there. Yes, very exciting. But in the meantime, I will be putting myself in a medically induced coma until 2024. (laughs) Is that when the next one's due to drop? So they're due to drop 2024, 2026, 2028. 
next one we get Luna Chaplin joining the cast oh. and uh, Michelle Yeoh. Mm. Very good. I cannot wait to go back to Pandora. <laughs> when I had to leave the theater and walk out onto Hollywood Boulevard, I was like, just going to walk into traffic. Do you remember back in the original one, there was like cases of people who had like a Pandora-induced yep. depression? <laughs> Honest to God, like suicidal depression. Okay, I have this theory that might sound bleak and maybe a little insane. 2010s was all about, you know, the age of the superhero and Marvel and DC and all that stuff. The 2020s are going to be the age of Avatar because as our planet slowly dies, gets a little worse, everybody starts talking like the priest from First Reformed. Every two years, we are going to have these movies that remind just how beautiful nature can be and how we can escape into that. And that is worth fighting for. I have to say it kind of connected to the Poitras stock. Like, it leaves you a little angry, doesn't it? Don't you kind of leave that thinking, like, yeah. how do we, what do we do about this? Yeah, looking around at all the concrete in the buildings, like, can we get rid of these palm trees? Because they're not even from here originally. Can we right, have, like, right. actual nature here? Plant some flowers, get some wildlife running for you. such a big movie, and I think we've talked at length about all the different things that it's balancing in there with that scale. One of them is just a really anti-imperialist, anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, pro-ecology, pro-environment, pro-nature. And it's not hackneyed anyway. It's not cheap. It's not simple. It's not subtle. It's a little heavy-handed. But it's heavy-handed in a way where you're like, I mean, it's important. First Reform's fucking heavy-handed. It's one of the best movies of the last decade. It works. It makes sense to be a little heavy-handed with the tool you're using as a baseball bat. And you're going, whack, whack, whack. Yeah. Maybe that's where we could put the bow on the importance of the blockbuster is that, like with Visconti, when you have these kind of operatic emotions and scale nuance is something that comes when you express really bold really loud like you're playing to the back of the audience and it's these it's these big emotions these big ideas it's not so fine-tuned and intimate and quiet and subtle but it has all those little subtleties and details in it as we've been talking about from the animation and the environment that really complements that scale it just kind of all comes together so beautifully it's all the different instruments leading up to the most beautiful sounding orchestra you've ever heard we will be buying tickets for the next show give us the movie that's all we want (laughs) today is like the day that this dropped after 13 years and i'm like all right next one let's go (laughs) i know roll film (laughs) they started filming yet what's going on freeze already in the can basically for they filmed at least a third of it and they're in production on the rest of four, and then five's in pre-production. And he's got an idea for six and seven, too. So 2022 in movies has been a bizarre experience of watching the industry sputter back to life after two years of a brutal, nasty pandemic. I mean, production levels are still down. You know, they're still not quite where they need to be, but... Watching the industry, you know, slowly sputter back to life this year has just been really gratifying to see. And the interesting route that the blockbuster has taken this year, going from a super grim adaptation of the Batman to Doctor Strange and then to Top Gun and really striking a chord in a way with people that hasn't been done in ages. And then, you know, like sputtering its way through Jurassic World or Thor or even like the 
less than hoped for returns on Wakanda Forever. And then to just see something like this that just remembers what blockbuster cinema is supposed to be just feels so satisfying after this entire year. Of the blockbusters, right now, today, how many of them are getting a Best Picture nomination? You know, the weird thing is, quite a few. Avatar? Absolutely. Top Gun? Absolutely. You want to stretch the definition of blockbuster a little bit? Elvis? Yes. Yeah, I would say that Elvis is a blockbuster personally. And even the indie blockbuster, everything, everywhere, all at once is a block at this point. I would agree. I think those are the four as well. I don't think Wakanda Forever. I think Wakanda Forever might get noms here and there. Mm -hmm. Angela Bassett, Ruth E. Carter would be the two. I feel like those are the biggest blocks for them at this point. Yeah. But... I think the Academy might just have their best ratings in decades uh, next year. And hey, nobody will even need to get slapped. <laughs> I think especially if Maverick and Avatar are both there, and if like Tom Cruise is maybe there for best actor, uh-huh. James Cameron and Steven Spielberg are going to be best director noms. Yep. I think Banshees is going to do some damage. Oh, yeah. And I think All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is like a mortal lock for documentary. So yeah. I'm going to end up happy no matter what. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if it was just five, it would be Avatar, Top Gun, Banshees, Everything Everywhere, and then Fablemans. You know that there's got to be some coda in there. You know they got to coda that shit up. <laughs> I guess and, that's what the 10 knobs are for, to be fair. Yeah. I guess the feel-good movie actually would be Fablemans in this case, so... God bless. <laughs> a year with great blockbusters, a year with great movies about the power of movies. Empire of Light. There you go. I don't think that's going anywhere. <laughs> Armageddon time? Uh, too quiet. Uh, Babylon is about to stampede all over it. Oh, yeah. God, you're right. That's getting in there, too, probably. I guess oh. it'll, we'll see based on the reaction. The ending is uh, very interesting. I'll just say that. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> I hate that she has, like, 80s hair. And like a very modern looking. It's like she's supposed to be like an actress in the twenties. Like what what the fuck is going on with this? I don't know. Anyway. That'll be a trip. Cole, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this movie. I know how excited you were to get to see it. I'm thrilled to have finally seen it and I'm thrilled to talk about it. Also just wanted to say thanks for hanging out and making all these podcast episodes with me this year. This is our last one. But we will be back next mm-hmm. year to talk about among other things. I know We'll probably end up talking about our favorite movies of 2022. Yeah. We're going to probably talk about Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite at some point in the month of January. And I've teased this before, but sometime probably around the re-release, we'll be talking about James Cameron's Titanic. Just can't stop talking about the guy. You said it already. I mean, like we'll just, you know, we do an Aliens episode. Here's an Abyss episode. Mm-hmm. Piranha 2 episode. <laughs> Eventually, we'll just get down to like those National Geographic documentaries where he just goes down to the Titanic like it's no big deal. Let's talk about his art decoration or set decoration on Escape from New York. His apartment layout, (laughs) his favorite Starbucks order. Like, we'll just, we'll do everything. Oh, this has been great. We look forward to Avatar 3. We look forward to more James Cameron press tour comments about what a badass he is. (laughs) And uh, we look forward to having more movies to discuss on this show next year. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, guys. We'll see you next time. That's right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.